Well, good evening. My name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Willingdon. And we are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 to 17, which is the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there? If you grabbed a Bible from the back, that's on page 826. And as you turn there, let me pray for us as we begin. And so, Father, I just pray that you would be with us in this time. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and that in it we see you more clearly. We see your son Jesus more clearly. And so, Father, as we look at your word now, I pray that you just give us eyes that are open, ears that are open, and and hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us. We pray that you be with us in this moment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we get into the text today, I wanted to share a childhood memory with you that I think has some relevance to what we're looking at today. The, the memory is actually of something I saw on TV, and I don't remember if it was in a commercial or a, a TV show, but the, the scene that I remember was, it was at nighttime, there was a group of people standing in front of a wall, and, and there seemed to be spotlights on them or something like that. I remember there was music playing in the background, and, and I think it might have been in slow motion, and a guy took a sledgehammer and started hitting this wall over and over again. And little chips started to come off this wall. And then he passed the sledgehammer to another person that was there. And this person started hitting this wall over and over again. And I remember being very young at the time that I saw this. But I remember thinking to myself, there's something about this that isn't just a normal demolition scene going on here. Right? This is like, typically, if you're going to destroy a wall that was this size, you would, you would get a you know, bulldozer or explosive, something like this. This was a group of people at nighttime with one sledgehammer passing in amongst themselves. Uh, there was something special going on here, and I found out a little while later that the wall that they were standing in front of was the Berlin Wall. And you see, what was happening was that they weren't only you know, physically knocking this wall down, they were actually destroying what it stood for as well. And with every single hit of the hammer, its statement was being made. This is the end of the communist regime. Families that have been separated are now going to be able to come back together. This marker of division in the city is now going to bring a way of of unifying the people in Berlin. And and it was interesting because nothing was said in this video. At least not the version I saw. There was just music and these actions. But the actions spoke very clearly because of the message that that was being communicated there. For those who knew which wall it was talking about. Now it's interesting because we see walls that fall down all the time. And they really don't have any significance. Right? So sometimes maybe you're doing a renovation or you're, you're thinking about re- renovating your house and everyone wants to do the open concept. So maybe you're thinking, you know, we'll knock down this wall. And knocking down that wall doesn't really have any significance. It's just to make the house look a little bit different. Uh, but in this case, knocking down a wall had great significance. It had great meaning. And the reason I bring this up is because in today's text, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is going to do some things that on the surface don't always have that great meaning and significance. Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's something people have done before Jesus did it. They did it after Jesus did it. So many people have done that without any real significance attached to it. It's just a mode of transportation into a city. But when Jesus does it in Matthew chapter 1, there's actually some incredible meaning and significance. And we want to take a look at what that is. So let's begin reading now in verse 1. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now we'll pause here for a second because a couple things are going on here. Uh, there's a few questions that are raised right away as we read this text. A couple things like, how does Jesus know all of these things? Right? So already, right away, we're kind of wondering, okay, who is Jesus that he knows where to find the donkey and exactly what to say? But the other question that kind of comes out of this is, why does Jesus actually need a donkey? If you've been reading Matthew's gospel up to this point, you'll know that Jesus and his disciples are actually really good at walking to different places. And if you look at a map, actually, that shows how far Jesus has come from the north to get to Jerusalem, it's quite clear that he could make the rest of the journey on his own. This would be kind of like walking to church this evening from Surrey, making it to BCIT, and then, and then hailing a cab and saying, I need to take a cab the rest of the way. It just wouldn't make sense. And so what Jesus is doing here, it's clear that whatever reason he actually needs this donkey, it's not because he's physically too tired to make the, the rest of the trip. And so right away, even in just these first few verses, we we get this sense that there's something special that's about to go on here. There's something that's happening. And and we'll keep reading how this turns out, starting again in verse 6, where it says, The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks, cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, if the donkey stuff wasn't enough, this is kind of tipping us off once again that something different is going on here. This isn't something that happens all the time, right? People don't usually take off their coats and lay them in front of donkeys so that the donkeys can walk over them. Uh, people don't usually cut branches off trees to do this. Something is, is going on here. And, and it's interesting that as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he actually doesn't say any words, at least in Matthew's account of this story. He doesn't say any words, but he's making a powerful statement. And we know that the people recognize this because look how they respond in verse 9. Look at the language they use. It says this, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus comes into the city riding on a donkey and the crowds recognize something's going on here. And not only do they recognize that something's going on, they know exactly what Jesus is trying to say. And so they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David. It's interesting, the the language that they use actually comes from Psalm 118, which is the psalm in the Old Testament. And they kind of quote this psalm, but they also kind of change it a little bit to fit the situation. In Psalm 118, the psalmist says, Hosanna to the Lord. Now, Hosanna is just a way of saying, save us, please, or save us, we pray. It's actually two words, Hosanna and Na. And and basically, in, in the Psalm 118, it's a cry out from God's people saying, God, would you save us from what we're going through? God, save us. Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here the crowds are saying, not Hosanna to the Lord. They're saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're saying, save us, please, son of David. And so the question is, why would they change, why would they change the words to this psalm? Who was this son of David, and why would they actually expect him to save them? 
And to answer this question, we actually need to look at this title, Son of David, and see what it means. You see, it wasn't actually a title that you would just throw around lightly in the first century. Uh, You wouldn't just call someone Son of David. This was a pretty important title because it represented a lot of the hopes and expectations that God's people had at this time. You see, the David in the Son of David, it's actually talking about King David from the Old Testament. So King David was the, one of the first kings of God's people in the Old Testament. And by a lot of people's standards, he was kind of this ideal king. He was almost the best king God's people had ever had. Now, of course, he had his major shortcomings, and we don't shy away from those. But in terms of people's view of David, he was seen as this king that had a heart after God's own heart. This incredible king. And God made a promise to David that had lasted throughout the generations. God made a promise to David. We read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 13. God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a pretty incredible promise. Right? God tells David, David, you're going to have a son or a descendant, and that descendant's going to have a throne that's established forever. He's going to build a house for my name. He's going to have a kingdom that endures for all time. And so right away after God gives this promise, people are wondering, how is God going to fulfill this promise? And as you keep reading David's story, there's actually this expectation that Solomon, one of David's literal sons, might be the one to do it. Now, it might sound strange hearing that, but when you actually look at Solomon's reign in the Old Testament, when Solomon takes the throne, all kinds of amazing things begin to happen. So if you think about the borders of the promised land, when Solomon starts to reign, the borders are the largest that they'll ever be. And not only are the borders of the promised land as large as they ever are, they actually have peace on all sides of them. So if you read the Old Testament, oftentimes God's people are at war. Oftentimes other nations are at war. When Solomon begins to reign, he actually has peace on all sides of him. Solomon is the one who builds the first temple, and he he gives the orders for the construction, and he oversees all the stuff that happens there. Solomon is called the wisest one who ever ruled over God's people. Solomon sees the glory of God enter the temple, and all kinds of amazing things happen under Solomon's reign. Many people call it the golden age, the the age where everything was good, prosperity for all people. And so a lot of people looked at the promise that God made to David, and they said, maybe Solomon's going to be the son of David that will fulfill this promise. Uh, But of course they were wrong about that, because the golden age didn't last. And it was Solomon, uh, it was led away from worshiping God. He started worshiping many idols and, and sacrificing to them and turned his heart away from God. And after that, everything falls apart for Solomon. Solomon actually dies and, and the kingdom goes to his son. And, and actually the majority of God's people reject Solomon's son and they, they, they start their own kingdom in the north. And David's descendants are left with just two of the tribes of Israel in the southern part of the kingdom. And everything after this just pales in comparison to the golden age that Solomon had. And and everything that you read in in the Old Testament, the history, just makes you think how good things were under Solomon and how they longed to get back to the days like that. Eventually the Babylonians come and they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And for hundreds of years, David is left without having a descendant on the throne. 
And so that same question resurfaces for God's people. The question is, how is God going to fulfill this promise that he made to David? How is God going to fulfill the promise that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever and will reign over God's people? And the answer was, well, obviously God's going to send a son of David who's going to fulfill these promises. He's going to restore the kingdom. He's going to be a son of David who sits on the throne in Jerusalem, who destroys the enemies, who brings peace and prosperity and all these things that God's people were hoping for. The expectation was that one day the son of David would come in the full fulfillment of what God was talking about when he made this prophecy to David. And so when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people call him the son of David, they're making a huge statement about who Jesus is. But, but the question is, what, what does Jesus riding into town on a donkey have to do with him being the son of David? And, and the answer to this is actually help, helps us when we look at how Solomon actually became king. We read about in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38 to 40, where it says this, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. You see, the first son of David came into town riding on a donkey, was announced to be the king, and all the people celebrated, so much so that the earth was split. However, we understand that. And so the expectation was when David's son, who comes in the fullness of the fulfillment of this prophecy, when that final son of David comes, he's going to do it the same way. And Zechariah, one of the prophets, actually prophesies this in chapter 9 of his prophecy. And Matthew picks up on this. He quotes it in Matthew 21, verse 4 and 5, the verses we skipped over earlier, which says this, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. And so you have this expectation that David's son is going to come and restore the kingdom. You have this prophecy that he's going to be announced by riding into the city on a donkey. And now think about what Jesus has been doing. He begins his ministry by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here. He spends so much of his time explaining to people, now that the kingdom of God is here, this is what the kingdom is going to be like. He does all kinds of miracles to authenticate the, the things that he's saying. And then he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's really no surprise that people are so excited when Jesus comes because they understand the statement that he's trying to make. Your outline says this, number one, the king has come. That's the statement that Jesus is making as he rides into Jerusalem. And on top of all the things that we just talked about, we remember as well that this is the Passover time. This is the time of year where God's people specifically remembered God's salvation, God's rescue from them when they were in the land of Egypt. And every year as Passover came around, people wondered, is this going to be the year where God sends a king to rescue us once again? And Jesus comes in this moment and he tells them, the time has come, the kingdom is here. 
The king of the kingdom has come and it's time for celebration. It's time to get excited about what God is doing. And so the people celebrate. The people are overjoyed when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. But of course, as we probably all know, the excitement doesn't last. And I don't know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it, sometimes I think about, isn't it amazing how close together Palm Sunday and Good Friday are? Right? You have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, five days. Five days you go from Jesus entering Jerusalem and the crowds are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, you're the king, we'll fall. And then five days later, Jesus is being crucified and rejected by all. Have you ever thought about how does someone go from being accepted and, and celebrated to being so utterly rejected in so short a span of time? It, it, it really is you know, hard, to, hard to comprehend. How does something like that happen? There's probably a number of things we could say about this. You know, of course, there's been people that have, have been kind of lobbying for Jesus' execution already. He's been in conflict with some of the religious leaders. But that still doesn't explain how the crowds sway so much in the course of one week. How do we go from welcoming the king to crucifying Jesus in so short an amount of time? Well, I think actually when we look at what Jesus does next, it helps us to answer that question. Because Jesus, the son of David, goes to the temple and what happens there and what he says and what he does shows that the people might not want the king when he comes. So let's keep reading in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, once again, Jesus is using a symbolic action to make a statement, right? I think most of us, even if you've never heard this story before, you read this and say, okay, Jesus is obviously trying to say something with what he's doing here. Uh, The question is, what is Jesus trying to say? And I think most of us, the first time we read this, we assume, okay, obviously there's something corrupt in, in, in happening in the temple. Obviously there's some kind of economic corruption that's happening because Jesus calls them a den of robbers. He turns over the tables. He drives out those buying and selling. So obviously there's some kind of financial corruption happening here. You know, the idea that people would come to buy a sacrifice to offer in the temple and the person selling the sacrifice would raise the price by more than double, right? That kind of thing. Or someone would come and they'd say, I want to make a donation to the temple. Can I please exchange my money so I can have the right, right currency to make that donation? And the exchange rate would all of a sudden just be completely out of whack. I think most of us, when we read this, this is kind of where we go initially to say, Jesus is upset because obviously there's some fishy business going on in the temple. Uh, he does, after all, call it a den of robbers. But I think as true as those things probably are, there's, there's something else that Jesus is driving at here. And in this case, when Jesus says what he does in the temple, it actually helps to explain his actions and give some pretty specific insight into what Jesus is doing. Jesus says this, he says, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He gives one statement, but it's actually drawn from two places in the Old Testament. The house of prayer comes from the book of Isaiah, and the den of robbers comes from the book of Jeremiah. And I think both of these, when we look at them, help us to see what's actually going on here. See, right from the beginning, as soon as Solomon built the temple, the temple was always supposed to be a house of prayer. 
When you go back and read in First Kings chapter 8 and, and earlier, when, when the temple's being built and when it's being dedicated, one of the major themes is that the temple's going to be a place where God's people can go and pray to God and he'll hear them and respond to their prayers. Right from the beginning, this has always been what the temple's been about. In fact, it's always been about being a place where all people could go and have their prayers heard by God. Solomon himself even prays about those not from the nation of Israel when they come and pray to God that God would hear them. We see this in 1 Kings 8, 41 to 43. Solomon prays, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far, from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. The prophet Isaiah also picked up on this theme, and, and he said this in Isaiah 56, verse 7, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. See, the point of the temple was to be a place where God's people could come and worship him and pray to him. And, and what is actually happening when Jesus shows up to the temple? Uh, it's not a house of prayer anymore. It's actually just a market. And you can just imagine how noisy and smelly and, and busy that temple would have been. Right? This is not a place to talk to God. This is a place to barter with the money changers and yell at the vendors to try to get a lower price. This is just a chaotic place. And I think part of what Jesus is doing when he's driving the people out of the temple, he's saying, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Maybe now it can start being one again. In other words, now that everything is gone, now that there's a bit of quiet, maybe now people can actually start to use the temple for what it was intended for. And especially at this time in, in the history of God's people, at this time, this was the only place that many people could have gone to pray to God in the temple. There was kind of certain areas that only some people could enter into. And so this was a huge deal to be having this marketplace here kept so many people from coming to the temple and actually doing what was supposed to be done there. Now, some people kind of argue with this and they say, well, actually, if you wanted people to give sacrifices and to donate to the temple, this was actually necessary to happen. And remember, people are coming from all over to come to Jerusalem at this time. So this is not, uh, you know, this is not just the normal crowd. This is people coming from all over. And so some people have suggested, well, if you wanted people to make sacrifices or you wanted people to donate money to the temple, these things were necessary. Because imagine trying to take an unblemished lamb with you on a, on a journey that's going to take several months and, and you, you know, the lamb can't get sick or injured or have any deep. You know, so it's much easier, they would say, if people just come to Jerusalem, pay some money, get some, get some sacrifice, sacrificial animals and do things that way. Uh, the same with currency, right? People are living all over the world, places where they don't use the same currency. So doesn't it make sense to have these things available for people who want to worship God and give and do these things? And I'll say that's a debate that we can have, but I think certainly Jesus is saying, even if those things are appropriate somewhere, they're certainly not appropriate here. And so Jesus clears out the temple and he says, this is a house of prayer. But I think as we look at what Jesus does next and what he says next, there's actually something much deeper happening at the temple that he's trying to address. 
See, not only does Jesus drive out those who are in the temple, he actually flips over the tables and chairs, the money, ta- money changers, and he says, this temple is now a den of robbers. And it's a curious phrase, and again, I think this is one of the reasons why so, so quickly we jump to this idea of there's ec- economic exploitation happening in the temple. But, but actually, when you look at this phrase, den of robbers, there's another place in the Bible that it shows up and gives really good insight into what's happening here. This phrase shows up in the book of of Jeremiah, chapter 7. And in Jeremiah, chapter 7, Jeremiah is a prophet, and he's standing in the temple, and he's speaking to the people in the temple, much like Jesus is here in this this passage. And Jeremiah has a message for the people, and he he comes before them, and he says this in Jeremiah 7, verse 4. He says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, you got to think about this. Jeremiah is standing in the temple with other people, and he's saying, don't trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. Well, the question is, of course, how are those deceptive words? They're standing in the temple, and it actually is the temple of the Lord. What is Jeremiah talking about there? Well, well, the problem is, or what makes these words deceptive is the way in which the people are using them. And when you go down a little bit to verse 8, Jeremiah explains. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. In other words, people are treating the temple like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like it's this kind of cheap grace dispenser. They say things like, let's kill, steal, destroy, and then we'll come to the temple and we'll get some forgiveness. And God can't say anything about it. God can't get mad at us because this is the temple of the Lord. You see, they're treating the temple like it's this, it's this kind of magic formula where they, we, can, we can live however we want, do whatever we want, and come to the temple, get some cleansing, get some forgiveness, and just get right back out to it. And so God calls them out on this, and he asks them a question. He asks them this question in Jeremiah 7, verse 11. He says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I have myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Has this house become a den of robbers? What does it mean for the temple to be a den of robbers? Well, exactly what we were just talking about. You go out, you kill, you steal, you destroy, you swear falsely, you worship other gods, and then you come back to the temple like it's your hideout. You get some forgiveness, you get your sins pardoned, and then you go plot your next crime. And you see, the, the, the point, that was never the point of the temple. The point of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was never to tell you how can you live your life however you want to and then just get some forgiveness so that you don't have to worry about God's judgment. Uh, the sacrificial system was never about telling you how can you just do whatever you want and avoid God being upset with you. The point of the sacrificial system was God to say to his people who were in covenant relationship to him, To tell them that sin actually needs to be forgiven. There's a punishment that comes from sin. And to remind them that God had made a way for that forgiveness, ultimately through Jesus. And so when you came to to offer sacrifices, this isn't you coming and saying, okay, now I can go do whatever I want. This is you saying, thank you, God, for what you've given to me in this forgiveness of sins. Uh, But the people aren't treating the temple like this anymore. 
And so I think what God says to, to the people in Amos chapter 5 would have really good relevance to the people in Jeremiah's day. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, the people have gotten really good at making sacrifices. Uh, they, they make a lot of them. They know all the things you're supposed to do, all the steps and, and everything that they're supposed to do. But they've stopped caring about the things that really matter to God. Communing with him in prayer. Living lives that reflect his character to this world. Demonstrating the justice and the mercy of God. And so God says, I'm not paying attention to your sacrifices when, when they're just really a covering for all the other stuff that's going on. You see, the temple was busy it was really, really busy, actually, but for all the wrong reasons. There was no prayer that was being offered. It was just a bunch of sacrifices that were only ever really being offered to justify the lifestyles of the people that were offering them. It was a hypocrisy that looked really good from the outside. Everything was happening. All the people were going through all the motions, but really there was nothing inside. On the inside, it was dead. And so in Jeremiah chapter 7, after this, God tells the people that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's coming under judgment. And in Jeremiah, a few chapters later, a few years later, that's exactly what happens. And so fast forward to Jesus now in the temple, overturning the tables and saying, this has become a den of robbers. I think for those who had ears to hear it, what Jesus was saying was, the temple is exactly like it was back in those days. And because of this, it's actually going to come under judgment. And I think actually when you look at the, the hearts of the people that are worshiping in the temple, it helps us to see why the king was rejected when he came. Your outline says this, the king has come, but the people are not ready. The people are not ready to accept Jesus as the king. And I think the reason for this, or at least one of the reasons, is that because they weren't actually ready for God to be their king. You see, they were happy to have a relationship with God as long as it was on their terms. As long as it was, what can I get out of this relationship? What can God give to me? Not, I want to give my whole life to him. And, and so, you know, they were very happy to have a relationship with God as long as it meant, you know, forgiveness of sins. As long as it meant, you know, blessings in, in these areas of my life. But as soon as, it actually, as soon as it actually had to become something that impacted every single day and every single aspect of their life, they weren't interested. And I think we see the same thing with Jesus and how they treat him. As long as they think Jesus is the king who's going to give them everything that they ever hoped for with Solomon... As long as they think Jesus is the king who's going to bring back this golden age where there's peace on all sides and economic prosperity and, and everything you can ever imagine, as long as they think Jesus is going to be that kind of king, they're happy for Jesus to come to Jerusalem. But as soon as they find out Jesus isn't going to give them the things that they wanted in the way that they wanted them, uh, they're ready to drop him in a second. You see, because I think the reality is God's people celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem but I think the truth is they actually didn't really want a king. They actually really didn't want someone to submit their lives to. 
I think we could say they really wanted what the king was going to offer them. They really wanted what the king was going to bring and and all the things he was going to do. But they actually didn't really want a king. They wanted to be king and have Jesus do the things that they would want him to do. And I think this is why Jesus goes from being welcomed as a hero in, in the beginning of the week to being crucified as a criminal shortly later. The people aren't ready for the king when he comes. Now, before we get too judgmental, I think it's important we stop and just reflect on our own lives. Because the truth is, I think this is just the tendency of of human beings in the relationship to God. See, one of the amazing truths of the Christian faith is that God has actually offered a relationship to us through Jesus Christ on the cross. In which we can have forgiveness of sins, in which we can have a, a relationship with God. But the truth is that that relationship comes to us on God's terms, not on our terms. God says, This is the way that it's going to go. But so often I think we try to rewrite the rules and say, Actually, God, this is how it's going to go. And we maybe would never do this explicitly, or maybe we would never say it this way, but we at least internally think things like, You know what, God, you're not going to touch this part of my life. You're not going to have anything to do with my relationships, but everything else you can kind of give your input into. Or we say things like, God, you're not going to touch my finances. You're not going to get near my money, but everything else you can kind of, you can have your input into. Or or we say things like, God, you're not going to touch this, this vice in my life. You're not going to get near that, but everything else is yours. And we try to make these deals with God. Sometimes we even do things like, God, you're not, you're not going to get rid of this in my life, but instead of, instead of getting rid of this thing, which is really keeping me from you, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try even harder in this area. And so I'm not going to deal with this issue that's just wrecking me inside, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to church every Sunday. And, and I'll, I'll even tithe and I'll, I'll give my money each week to the church and I'll volunteer in different ministries. And so that will kind of balance it out. And we try to sometimes make these deals with God where we say, God, you know, I'm not going to give you this, but I'll give you this. It's like a bartering system. And what that leads to is these facades that we walk around with. It leads to hypocrisy. Where outwardly it looks like we're, we're busy doing the Lord's work and it looks like everything we got going together. But inwardly there's this struggle that's happening there. You see, in Jesus' day, the temple was really busy, but it was busy for all the wrong reasons. I wonder sometimes in a culture where we're so proud to be busy, how often is our busyness just a way of us kind of trying to barter with God? And again, we probably would never say it like that. But how often do we think things like, God, I've been doing all this stuff for you. I've been volunteering for, for how long and then this happens in my life? We feel like we're hard done by. And, and, and sometimes, again, it can just bring us to this place where we feel like we're such a different person on one day of the week than we are from the rest of it. And again, we make these deals with God and we say, God, I can't, I can't get rid of this sin, but I'm going to do all these. And we, we start living this double life where things are really good one day of the week. And then we're just reminded the rest of the time how bad things really are. Friends, God does not want you to be in that place. John Foreman's a Christian singer-songwriter. He took the words from Amos 5 that we read earlier, and he wrote a song called Instead of a Show. I want you to listen to the lyrics. I think they're really powerful as we think about some of these things. I hate all your show and pretense. 
The hypocrisy of your praise. The hypocrisy of your festivals. I hate all your show. Away with your noisy worship. Away with your noisy hymns. I stop at my ears when you're singing them. I hate all your shows. Instead, let there be a flood of justice. An endless procession of righteous living. Instead, let there be a flood of justice. Instead of a show. Now, is coming to church and singing worship songs to God wrong? Obviously not. It's an important part of what we do. So I'm not saying, you know, don't come to church on Sunday, just live like, you know. But what I am saying is that's all we do in our Christian faith. If all it is is this kind of facade where we come and pretend everything's great and we're fully on board and we're fully surrendered, but then the rest of the week we just know how untrue that is, God's actually inviting you into something way better than that. Because God's not interested in the show. I don't think anyone's really interested in this show, right? Nobody likes the idea of someone who's one way on Sunday and then different the rest of the week. God's not interested in that. He calls you into something that's much better than that. And, And the truth is, he sees right through all of that stuff anyways. So we're really only fooling ourselves and other people around us. But God calls us to more. Your airline says this, we must accept the king on his terms. And the truth is, we talked about this, you can't write the rules for your relationship with God. You can't say, God, this is where I'm going, and if you want to come along with me, that's great. You can't write the rules for your relationship with God. But the good news is, you don't actually have to. Because what God has in store for you is way better than what you would have for yourself. You see, the truth is, when we hold on to areas of our life, when we say, God, you're not getting this thing, you're not taking this away from me, you're not coming over here and taking this from me, the truth is, we're not actually holding on to our freedom in those moments, we're holding on to our chains. And God actually comes and says, I want to offer you freedom in those areas, and you need to let him do it. We all need to let him do it, because it's far greater to walk in freedom than to live in this double life, to live this facade, to live this hypocrisy. Jesus calls us into much more than that. And so I think as we reflect on this story, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Do we really want a king? Or do we just want what the king offers to us? See, in Jesus' day, they were expecting the son of David to come in and to destroy the enemies of God's people. Well, Jesus did come and he destroyed sin and death, the greatest enemies that we ever had. They expected the son of David to come and bring peace and prosperity. And Jesus has come and brought us peace with God and all kinds of spiritual blessings. They expected the son of David to do all these things. And Jesus came and he gave us things that are even better. But the question we need to ask is not only do I want the things that Jesus has to offer. The question we need to ask is do I want Jesus as my king? Do I want to give up control of my life and and say, not, you know, I'm going to do my thing and let God come along. We're going to say, God, you take control and you do in my life what you want. And it's actually in a decision like this, those who are broken, those who have reached the bottom, those who are spiritually poor in spirit, who have the advantage. Because as long as you're still holding on to your idea of what your life's going to be like, 
As long as you're still grasping at this is my dream for my life and this is where I'm going and if God wants to come along, as long as we're doing that, we actually probably won't want a king. We want God to be, you know, our helper. We'll want God to be the one who blesses us, but we probably won't want God to be our king. But Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the king. And he's a good king. He's a gentle king. He's a patient king. He's a king that wants the very best for us, but he is our king. And so the question is, are you willing to accept him as your king and to be changed in every area of life? Not everyone was. In fact, when Jesus came, most people were not ready yet to accept him. But there were some. In fact, it's, it's amazing that some in this story who are actually blind are those who see best what's going on here. We'll read again in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out, to the city, out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. See, most people weren't ready when the king came, but there were some who were. And they accepted the king, not on their own terms, not for what they could get out of the, out of the relationship, but for the sake of knowing him and being known by him. And who embraced what it meant to be transformed from the inside out by the king of kings. And so the question remains for us, do we want a king? I hope you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all these things that we just read. Jesus, we thank you that you're the king of kings, that you're a gentle king, a humble king, a patient king. You're a king who knows what's best for us and you want what's best for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would accept you as our king today. Father, forgive us for those areas of life where we've said that you're, you're not allowed. Father, I pray that you'd lead us into freedom that comes from following you. Father, we don't want to be people that wear masks or facades. Father, we want to be people that follow you in every ounce of who we are. And so, Father, help us. We can't do this on our own. Forgive us where we've fallen. Call us back to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.